Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 7. I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, our Frontlines team can bring you one. Just put up your hand and they'll bring you a Bible so you can follow along with the reading and along with the sermon as well this morning. Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the word of God. Well, i got to be honest, I'm really impressed that uh, you came back after last week. Uh, I had a number of people say, wow, that was a, that was a heavy, heavy sermon last week, and uh, it's just going to be as heavy this week. So I hope you're, uh, you're prepared, and then when you come back for week three, we'll just, you know, we'll just be like, okay, just bring it on, right? So this is very good. Well, yesterday, I want to tell you a little story, uh, was with the Multifaith Resource Team, uh, which is a group on campus here. And on the team, I'm part of it now so that we can have access to this university space. And we did an event yesterday called uh, the Places of Worship Walking Tour. And we went to a number of religious uh, worship uh, centers in the city. So we started off downtown at Church of Our Lady, and we took in the basilica that is there, and we're explained all of the various things that happen uh, at the basilica. And then we went to a local synagogue uh, to learn more about Judaism. And then we went to the Muslim Society of Guelph and learned a little bit about Islam. So there was about 15 or so of us on this walking tour, and in each place that we visited, we found out a little bit more about that particular religion, although at the Basilica, we really just were being told a lot about the building itself. And as you, as you listen to various people talk about their various religious faiths and experiences, it becomes very, very important to understand what makes each of these religious faiths different. And with Christianity or Catholicism, Catholicism being a, a realm of Christianity, although there is Protestant uh, evangelical and then there's Catholicism, so there is a difference, and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about that at another time. You have the differences there, but then you go into Judaism and Islam. Those are, these are three major religions that are in the world today, and the difference between every of, one of each of these uh, religions is their perspective on who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Was Jesus who Jesus said he was, as we understand, as talked to us in the New Testament? Was he fully God? Did he, in fact, die on the cross? Did he, in fact, come back to life? And do we believe that the things he said, that they're legitimate and that they're true? And so Christianity has uh, an understanding that Jesus is who he says he was, that he wasn't lying about it, and he came to this earth for the sole purpose of helping us understand what the kingdom of God is like, but then also to die on the cross for our sins, come back to life after three days, which then gives us victory and a promised victory that one day we get to spend eternity with Jesus. Now, the point that needs to be made here is that all of us need salvation through Jesus, Every single human being on the planet needs salvation through Jesus because outside of Jesus, we are all unbelievers. We all have areas of our life that we do not believe Christ. We're all flawed. 
The Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one person. And so Christianity says the reason we celebrate Jesus so much, the reason we say he's such a big deal is because he came to give us life. He came to give us a way. He came to restore relationship with God the Father and our way to heaven eternally with him to spend all of the rest of our days eternally is only through Jesus Christ. It's not through anything that we personally can do or religious observance. Now, as you get to know the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, the biography of Jesus' life, you find that Jesus had a couple of different groups of people that he was fairly influential with, or people that he uh, upset. And one of the groups of people that he upset were the Pharisees. Now, from the surface, you would say that the Pharisees, why are you got an issue with the Pharisees, Jesus? They're just obeying all the laws. Like, next to someone that isn't obeying the laws, they actually look pretty good. But it's interesting, Jesus had as much issue issue with the Pharisees and the religious leaders as he did with the people that were outside of the church. And in many ways, he actually preferred the people that were outside the church. Because they had an interest, they had an intrigue about him. Interesting. The temptation that we're going to be talking about today is the temptation to be religious. Now, a bit of clarifying of terms. You might hear people say, well, you're, you go to your services now at War Memorial Hall. You seem to be a very religious person. And what I mean by religious is that typically what characterizes many religions is activity that betters your position with God. And hear this. Christians believe that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and by grace alone, not in religious obedience. We're saved by grace through faith, not religious obedience. That doesn't mean that obedience to God isn't necessary, which we're going to talk about a little bit today, but that faith in Jesus Christ is what saves you, but also faith in Jesus Christ If you believe and have faith in Jesus Christ, it will automatically affect the way in your behavior. But we are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by our perfection or religious observance or I do better things than you do. And a great way to test if you're struggling with self-righteousness is to ask the question, think of somebody that calls himself a Christian. And if you're in heaven, would you be upset that they were there? What are you doing here? Because if we were saved by grace, they could turn to you and ask the exact same question. What are you doing here? Because you're standing when you're eventually with Christ eternally. He's with us now. But when you're with him eternally, is based on the fact that you have been saved by grace as the other person that will be standing there is also saved by grace. Sound fun? Let's jump in. Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is the holy city. We are to understand that that this is Jerusalem. We're told that he's standing and he's upset and he's on the top of the pinnacle. Uh, What most scholars believe is that this is likely the portico that is off of Herod's uh, part of the temple. And that the distance between this pinnacle to the ground would be 450 feet. Interesting detail. What later happened is James, who was one of the 
the, you could say, pastors in Jerusalem was eventually martyred by being thrown off of this pinnacle. And this is where Satan takes Jesus next. This is the center, you must understand it as the holy city. This is metropolis of all religious life. This is where the busybody religious activity happens. And so Satan realizes in the wilderness, I couldn't get you. Maybe I could take you to the religious pinnacle and peak, the metropolis of all religious life. And let's see if I can tempt you here. Here's the point. Here's the application we need to make, okay? Satan tempts in the wilderness and in the temple. Satan tempts in the wilderness, the the outside of the church. And many of us last week left with like, oh my goodness, there was a lot brought up there that I need to do some work on. But if he can't get you out there, he'll get you in here. Because the reality is, if the first temptation was to be sub-Christian, here is the temptation to be super-Christian. Because here's what we learn about Satan. In 1 Peter, verses 5, verse 8, it says this, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This should keep us on our toes. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. And in this verse, it doesn't tell us, well, he only does it outside of the church. No, if he can't get you outside of the church, he'll try to get you inside the church. And one of the major ways he tries to do that is to have you believe that your way to heaven is to be super Christian and to build up yourself a platform of pride. Of look at me, look at my obedience, look at my observance. I'm better than you over there. He does it. So the setting tells us a lot then about the temptation that is to follow. He takes them to the metropolis of religious activity in Jerusalem. And he says to him, If you are the Son of God... As we talked about last week, Satan already tried this tactic, right? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into loaves of bread. Feed yourself. He's calling into question Jesus' identity, which in the passage before, chapter 4 of Matthew, we are told that Jesus' identity has been affirmed. He's the Son of God. He is the beloved Son of God, and in whom God the Father is well pleased. And now he says, if you are the Son of God, let's test your identity Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. The temptation here, let's not fool ourselves, throw yourself down, is literally Jesus, jump. 450 feet, jump. And his argument he then brings in, God's word and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down because doesn't, don't your scriptures tell you that God will protect you if you jump? Is that not what your God says? Here's some application. Satan's power is limited and he himself cannot throw Jesus down. He can only tempt. Now this is really, really important. Hear what uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary tells us. Whatever real mischief is done to us, it is our own doing. 
The devil can but persuade, he cannot compel. He can but say, cast thyself down, he cannot cast us down. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust, and not forced, but enticed. Therefore, let us not hurt ourselves, and then, blessed be God, no one else can hurt us. Here's why this is important. Because a lot of people, when they give in to temptation, say, I had no choice. No, you have a choice. You can be tempted, but it is your choice to act upon that temptation. Satan can only entice you. So therefore, his power is limited. This is a good thing, right? Aren't you glad that he doesn't make you do things? He can't force your hand, but instead he tempts, he's limited. But that also means that we serve a God that is not limited And that's really good news. Quote I heard this week, Temptation is a woman's weapon and a man's excuse. It's from H.L. Mencken. Temptation is a woman's weapon and a man's excuse. I hear many, many guys talk about the temptation towards lustful things. And let's not be kidding ourselves. Women are tempted towards lustful things as well. But in the situations I'm generally in, I mostly hear the, man, the man's perspective. And the excuse that many men and many guys give me is, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't stop myself. I had to do it. I've never lived without it. What we read here is Satan's power is limited. He can only tempt. He cannot force your hand. And as we learned last week, the Holy Spirit gives us a way out of every temptation. He gives us the power. He gives us the courage. He gives us boldness in situations where it is incredibly difficult to be bold, yet he empowers us to say no. Because when we say no, as we learned last week, to temptation and unwise or unhealthy things, we say yes to Jesus. And that relationship is primary. So here's what Satan actually is tempting Jesus to do. Satan tempts Jesus to do something spectacular. (laughs) And he falsely uses the word of God as his motivation. First, let's start with do something spectacular. And therefore, if you can do something spectacular, Jesus, therefore you'll be spectacular. He's saying prove your identity to yourself and to the world. Be awesome. In the first temptation, a need existed. In this temptation, a need is created. To go and have more, Jesus. Imagine, Jesus, if you were to jump from here, what an incredible way to launch your ministry amongst the religious people. They would see you jump and they would see you caught and you'd be protected. Imagine. Now, in in these days, if you don't study much history, you might not know this, there were a lot of people coming forward and claiming to be the Messiah. Well, don't you think that this would have been a way, if Jesus is to go on to to tell us who he actually is, this could have been a way for him to, no ifs, ands, or buts. Did you see what I just did there? I'm pretty good. I am the one that that you have been waiting for. Now, to apply it, many of us want to be spectacular. We want to do spectacular things. Tim Chaddock in his book, The Truth About Lies, which is another must read. He says, if possible, Satan will try and get you to climb the religious ladder to a high position with the religious uniform on. And what better place to be than at the top of the holy institution? 
If Satan cannot get you to fall in secular society, he will get you to rise in religiosity. And the temptation to be spectacular oftentimes plays itself out in hypocrisy. I am better than you. I am greater than you. I obey more than you do. I remember when I was in youth group, I was always the kid that was asked to pray. And it really worked well with my self-righteousness because it made me feel pretty good. I'm the praying kid. Well, Matt, you pray. You're really good at praying. Even now, I go to uh, hangouts. If I ever come to your house and we're having dinner, don't ask me to pray, okay? You can do it. You can pray. Because what it says is, Matt, you're more holy than us, so why don't you go ahead and pray? All of us, by the blood of Jesus, have access to God. All of us. But some of us like this platform. Remember, uh, some of us in this room know who Steve Adams is. And before planting uh, the church um, a couple few years ago, I asked Steve, I said, Steve, what do I got to look out for? And he said this. He said, babes, bucks, and big shots. The three Bs. He says the three things that take pastoral leaders down. Babes, girls, bucks, money. I don't, that must be like southern states sort of thing. And then big shots, pride. Look at me. Look how great I am. You know what is the greatest test of character to a pastor or someone like me that gets to speak? I go to a retreat like snow camp and I speak for all of these people and I get a number of teens coming up and just being really thankful. I remember I went to one and I'm literally like in the cafeteria scooping food onto my plate and this student comes across and they're getting food on the opposite side of the table and I ask them how they are and they're like, uh, 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 I'm sorry if I'm nervous. I, I just can't believe I'm talking to you, you right now. And I'm like, really? Really? I'm just, I'm just mad. Like, it's totally fine. But that can get to you, right? Like, these people think I'm something. And then I go home and Andrea's like, you've been away all weekend. Could you please help out around here? Like, go do the dishes or something. Help with the house. Help with the kids. And they're like, no, I'm religiously tired. Did you not see all of the work I just did all weekend? I was just be- busy being worshipped. Who are you to come in and knock me down? Now, we can all laugh at my situation, but let's turn the mirror. What are ways that we use our service to try to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? Some people just get high on volunteering. They can't stop. Whatever it is, I'll do anything. And for some of them, it's for the reasons and sole purpose of, I need to be involved in everything so God thinks I'm better. So God thinks I'm good. I need to impress him. But here's the test. When many of these people spend time alone with God, they hear just noise. There's no intimate relationship. There's no communion with Jesus. It's just a bunch of activity. And Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees out for the very same thing. He said, you run around and you obey all of these things, but there's no communion. There's no intimacy. You know, our, our, our teams here that play music, they're, they're spectacular. They're very gifted musically. Uh, many of us have been very encouraged by this. But the greatest temptation is for these music people to stand up here and think that they're something. Because they're just a conduit to Jesus. We don't worship them. We can be thankful to the Lord for their gifts, but we do not worship them. 
Yet it's such a crazy temptation, the temptation of Satan where he comes and says, you're pretty good. You led people into the presence of Jesus. Way to go. Or as pastor sometimes, you, you saved people this week. That's not the case. The Holy Spirit saves people. Church of the City is not a place where you are welcome to worship a teacher or a band or a church model or structure. Church of the City is a church where we come and we celebrate and we worship Jesus. Because if this is built on anything else, it will just take a better worship band, a better speaker, a better venue to bring the whole thing down. You know, I oftentimes think of the church as a box that says fragile on it. You ever helped somebody move before? And you pick up a box, and it doesn't say fragile, so you're just like throwing it into the truck. Let's just get the job done. And then someone comes out and says, here's the box. It's really fragile. And you take it, and you kind of walk carefully. Hey, guys, this one's fragile. Put it in there carefully. So you put it in there carefully because you recognize that it can break. The church is God's bride. It's a fragile thing. We must treat it that way. And the moment we start thinking we're something to be spectacular is the moment we've said to Jesus, we don't need you anymore because we can do it ourselves. And let's not be deceived. There are many churches that are built upon self and not upon Jesus. As a church planter, I can tell you, you can plant a church without Jesus being involved. Just get really, really solid, gifted people that can do everything themselves. And if we stop our expectation that Jesus is here and Jesus needs to do something, then we've built it upon ourselves. And you can go and find another church if that's what you want. But at Church of the City, we want to stay dependent upon the Holy Spirit and expect Him to do incredible things. And that the good news of Jesus needs to go out into our city. This is not a place where it's just goods and services being taken in. This is a place that believes the good news of Jesus changes things. This is Church of the City. Now notice what he does. okay? Because he doesn't just want us to do things spectacular. He'll even get the scriptures confused and misinterpreted so that we think that we're being awesome again. So here's some examples. Examples in the church. Politics. Now, I know it's easy. We can just look south and see this on full display. But how many verses of the Bible are being quoted in politics because we believe this is the way our nation needs to be? And when you think about it, many of the times there's verses and they're not properly interpreted. Or how about wealth and consumerism? God wants you to be healthy and wealthy with the perfect job. Or how about pride and influence, Christian celebrityism? God wants you to be a celebrated Christian leader. Or how about a, a very poor understanding of the theology of suffering? Christians should not suffer, and if it gets hard, get out of there. God wouldn't want you to put yourself in harm's way. Are you kidding me? In a world in which the majority of nations on the planet hate Christians, are murdering Christians, if God doesn't want us there, then just leave. But God wants us there. He wants to send us 
to the least reached places and the most difficult places. And our churches are built upon the backs of men and women who are martyrs for the faith. Another example is, we talked about it before, but consuming Christian goods and services. God wants me to be happy and involved in everything. And we can now in the Western world experience something called church shopping. Try this one if it meets my needs. Try this one. This church just isn't doing it for me. I've asked, people have asked me, at what point, Matt, do you think it's okay to leave a church? There's a lot of different opinions on this topic, by the way. And my hope, if I'm ever in a situation where I'm not in the leadership of the church, is that I'd in many ways be able to sit under leadership where the gospel is important. Where the gospel is the most important thing. And that if the gospel is ever removed from being the most important thing, then it's time for me to leave. But with the gospel, then I hope that regardless of how the music is, regardless of the quality of the preaching, I hope I'm able to stay because the gospel is preached every single week and Jesus is the one that we believe in that gets us to heaven. Because that's the church I want to be a part of that believes in the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, in all of this, what's Satan trying to do? Like, what's Satan trying to do in saying, Jesus, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. And here's some verses that I'm going to mix up for you to say that it's actually important that you do this. Well, Satan's end goal is to have Jesus distrust the Father. If Jesus is to throw himself down, it would be tempting God. Put God in the position where he needs to come through for you. What he's essentially saying is, make God provide further confirmation with what he has already been confirmed, that you are the Son of God. So get another sign, Jesus, because the baptism one wasn't enough. Require special preservation towards something he has not called you to do. He's demanding sensational proof. And it's not evidence of faith, but of doubt. The dramatic proof is nothing but masked unbelief. Friends, there has been enough, in my perspective, enough reasons for you to consider the Christian faith and its validity. And why I say this is because many people believe, I just need to see more signs. I just need to see something else. If you would just jump off the pinnacle of the temple and be saved, that would do it for me. That would make me say, that would make me believe. Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's all we need. The things that the Holy Spirit does in and amongst us is reason to believe. I remember hearing one person say, one changed life is enough of an apologetic for the Christian faith. One radically changed life. And many of us know stories. Many of us are sitting stories of that, in which my life was in one direction, Jesus came into my life, and boom, I'm going the complete opposite direction. Like, that's good news. That's the stories we need to keep celebrating and keep sharing. But what Satan wants to do is put Jesus to the test and say, test God. Tempt God. Distrust what he has already told you and ask him to do even more. 
And you know what's crazy? Is even some of us that are involved in tons and tons of religious activity even get to a point where we're like, I'm not convinced. Because we've been leaning on observance and obedience for that sensation. And we eventually realize it's not enough because we've been looking for those things to save us and only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus gives you the motivation. Only Jesus gives you the strength. Only Jesus allows you to endure. Only Jesus will give you the patience to go through suffering and come out on the other side and say it was worth it because of Jesus. Because if it's built on anything else, you'll peace out as soon as it gets hard. It's why when, when people were, were first expressing they wanted to come and be part of the planting of, of the church, and this church, I'm sure when James, they planted Willow, if you're not coming for Jesus, don't come. If you're not coming for Jesus, don't come. Because that all, that we, all it will take is for things to get difficult, for things to get hard, for things not to happen the way that you hoped it would happen, and you will leave. So come for Jesus. And we had some, some families at the beginning of our church plant, and if they hadn't come for Jesus, they would have been gone immediately. One person couldn't get a job. They couldn't find a house that they wanted. They were having difficulty getting pregnant. All of these different things. Come and go for Jesus. He is to be our motivation. Now, how does Jesus respond? Because I have to imagine this is quite tempting. How does Jesus respond? Jesus said to him, Again, it is written. Remember, he does this in the first. You shall not put the Lord your God to the chest. This is what Jameson and Fawcett say in their commentary. True, it is so written, and on that promise I implicitly rely. But in using it, there is another scripture which must not be forgotten. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the application is rather than abandoning the scriptures, Jesus returns to them. Notice he could have said, okay, well, he he quoted scripture to me, so I've got to go away from scripture now. And he says, no, I'm going back to it. This is where I rely on the words of my father. And you've tried to take it, Satan, and you've tried to entice me, and you've tried to get things all, all, all mixed up. You're trying to get me confused. And yes, I rely on that. I believe that God the Father will protect me. But Satan, I'm also not to tempt my father. When we hear people, and when people are giving you biblical scriptures to back up things, you need to test it with looking at the totality of the scriptural view. It's, what's interesting about Satan, and, and a lot of people forget this about Satan, is the scriptures tell us that, that he clothes himself as an angel of light. He can clothe himself as an angel of light. What that means is that there are times and there are situations and there are things where Satan, where people will seem good, but in actuality it's Satan. This is what James 2 verse 19 says. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So just because you believe doesn't mean you're wholly submitted. Doesn't mean you're wholly surrendered. 
And it's so important for us to understand this, to realize that it's about full surrender to Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. He abandons himself to the Scriptures. He doesn't abandon them. He returns to them. And then secondly, Jesus surrenders to the Father. And the first thing he surrenders to is the Father's plan. And he realizes that throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple is not part of the Father's plan. Yes, Satan, you're right. It would be a lovely proof of who I am. But that's not what my Father wants me to do. That's not what he's called me to do. He's asked me to spend 40 days without food and water in the desert, being dependent upon him. He has not asked me to take things into my own hands and throw myself off the temple and test God with everything. He's asked me to be obedient. He's asked me to be faithful. And if I'm to throw myself off the temple, there would probably be another temptation that I would want as well. And that other temptation would continue to be spectacular. Henry Nowen says this, Jesus refused to be a stuntman. He did not come to walk on hot coals, swallow fire, or put his hand in a lion's mouth to demonstrate he had something worthwhile to say. Jesus refuses to give into sensationalism because it will inevitably want more proofs. And repeatedly in Jesus' life, he refuses to give signs. And those that were wanting signs left anyways because their faith was built on a sensationalism and not on anything more. So Jesus surrenders to the Father, but then he also does something else in his surrender. He eventually surrenders to death. Hear this. This is found in Matthew 27. This is Jesus on the cross. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Notice the similarities in the temptation. Throw yourself down. Come down from that cross. Then we'll believe you are who you say you are. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. It's the same temptation. Come down from there, Jesus. Save yourself, then we'll believe in you. Do something spectacular. And then they start mocking his relationship with the Father. You said you're the Son of God. Does God the Father not care about you? Look at you, hanging on a cross. Be spectacular. Do something spectacular. Matthew Henry writes, That which Satan aimed at in all his temptations was to bring him to sin against God and so to render him forever incapable of being a sacrifice for the sin of others. Because if Satan could get Jesus to distrust the Father, he would have him sinning. And then Jesus could not die for the salvation of you and of me. Let's get him to distrust. Let's deter the intimacy. Now I want you to think about your relationships with Jesus. In what ways is Satan tempting you and he wants you to distrust the Father? Believe that the Father doesn't love you. If God really loved you, he would just make himself more known to you in this way that you're looking for. 
And this then asks, it makes us ask the question is, how do we respond? And this is Jesus' invitation in Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the first command there is to deny yourself. Now that, that is for those of us that would say, I'm, I'm a terrible person. I do a lot of really, really bad things. But that's also for those of us that on the other side say, I do a lot of really, really good things, but we're doing the good things out of the wrong motivation. And over and over again in the scriptures, there's this understanding that we need to kill sin or sin will eventually kill you. Romans 8 verse 13 says, For if you live, live according to the flesh, you will die. But if this, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So to deny ourselves is to kill the things in our life that are trying to drag us down, that are trying to tempt us. I talk to so many people, and they're willing to sit in the same circumstance, in the same situation, and not willing to do the hard things to make sure that they're not even going to fall susceptible to a particular temptation. I remember hearing a story of someone told it was kind of one of those shows of like thousands of ways to die. And the, the idea was somebody, there was this girl in a bikini who was, came out on a stage and she like laid on a lion. And it was like, oh, you know, this is quite the feat, like being in a bikini and lie on top of a lion. And the lion like went against all of its training and mauled her and killed her. And you're like thinking about this situation, you're like, it's a lion. What were you thinking? What does First Peter tell us? Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Don't mess with the lion! Kill the sin before it has even the opportunity to kill you. I remember hearing Rick Warren say he'll never drive anywhere or have any one-on-one meeting with any women. And you'd think, Rick, like, there's like half your congregation or more women. He said, you know what? I would rather jump overboard than get thrown overboard. And it's so true, right? Kill the sin or the sin will kill you. This is what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus. Whoa. Is Jesus talking literally like hand caught? Boop. No, but he's expressing the deep need for us to take seriously the things in our life that are tempting us to do things that are going against the plan of God and his desire for our lives. If there's an app on your phone that's causing you to sin, delete the app. Get somebody else to know the password and have the restrictions on your phone so you can't even get there. Kill sin or it will kill you. Because what Jesus is saying is, while it'd be lovely to not cut it off, the reality is, is that those choices to trust in yourself and not trust in the Father will eventually take you to a place apart from God forever. So it's better to get rid of it now so you can realize the goodness that God has for you in the way that he loves you and has his plan for your life. So get rid of it. 
James 4 verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But notice what happens and what happens needs to happen first. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Jesus then says, take up your cross. I kind of word it is because the reality here is take up your death device. The ultimate surrender of laying your life down for somebody else. Henry Nouwen, in the name of Jesus' book, writes, Laying down your life means making your own faith and doubt, hope and despair, joy and sadness, courage and fear available to others as ways of getting in touch with the Lord of life. He then goes on to talk about the power of confession. Take up your cross. The greatest way for people of pride to have pride eliminated from their lives is to become people of confession. Because otherwise they'll just deny that pride's an issue. I need to confess to you, okay, that I like being liked. I like giving good sermons. And I like when you come up and tell me that I'm the best. And sometimes I like it too much. That's why you'll find whenever I, when someone tells me, I remember hearing earlier on in my ministry career that when people came up and said nice things, to say praise God immediately. Because it immediately takes the temptation of, yeah, I'm pretty good, to wait, God first. Praise God that his Holy Spirit did something in you today. And that I'm just like this mess of a person that he saw fit to use this morning. Praise God. It's not about me. And then Jesus says, follow me. And following, in the language of Jesus, is to be an apprentice to him, to learn. Titus 2, verses 11 to 13 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a life self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that he's training us to renounce ungodliness training. Then in 1 Timothy 4.8, a verse I always need to remind myself of, of on January 1st. For while dr- bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We need to train ourselves in the way of Jesus. Training. And some training is positive and feels great. Some training is incredibly difficult. It's like, oh, I just wanted someone to tell me I was awesome. Why did nobody tell me? Okay, reminded, Lord, it's about you. It's not about me. Oh, I really wanted to go to that other worship event. Lord, I'm going to do the hard work of spending in alone time with you to develop my own intimacy with Jesus and not just going for sensationalism, but spend time with you. God, the band was really, really off this morning. I had time worshiping. Why were they so off? Wait, it's not about the band. It's not about the notes. It's about worship to Jesus. One of the greatest ways to find out if you actually like singing to Jesus or not is to get 10 people in a room and see how loud you sing. Remember when we first planted the church? It was like there was like 15 of us and we're like singing 
Blessed be your name. <laughs> and it's like, I really like singing this when there's a sweet band and when nobody else can hear my voice. Because that's singing for my, that's really singing for myself. But what about singing when nobody, when everybody can hear? Can you worship Jesus in that context? It's training. It's difficult. And to train yourself not to, not to eat more than you should, to train yourself not to look at porn, not to send pictures, all of these different things we could talk about as activity, you need to train yourself to trust Jesus more than those things. Because ultimately what it is, it's distrust in the Father. I distrust your plan for my life. Distrust you'll provide what I actually need. And therefore, you're defining yourself on what you feel like you need rather on what God says that you need. And you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Now, what's the motivation for our training? The motivation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's a quote from Tim Keller. He says, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And this applies to all of us. The legalist, the religious, but also to the people that the religious and legalists would call the liberalists. Every single one of us are more flawed than we could ever dream, yet at the same time, we're more loved. Pessimism, yet optimism. And Jesus becomes our motivation. This morning, we're going to take communion. It's a great Sunday for communion. Because if you're sitting here, and the example and the illustration that I gave earlier this morning, that if you ended up in heaven, and you looked across the room, and there was that person that you were convinced, you said, there is no way that person should be here. How dare God have let them in? Do they not know that they did this, 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 and this? Yet as we hold the mirror of the gospel up to ourselves, we're forced with the reality of what about this, 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 and this, and this, and this. Jesus says, let he who is without sin be the one to cast the stone. And you know what's fascinating about that story? Jesus could have cast a stone. You ever think about that? Here's this woman caught in adultery on the ground. All these Pharisees are are around like, ooh, ooh. They got stones and they're ready to hurl them. And Jesus is standing there. Let he is who without sin cast the first stone. Jesus was the only person in that circle who was sinless and could have taken the stone and whipped it at her. Yet what does he do? He trades places with the woman on the ground and he takes the stones and he takes the whipping and he takes the crucifixion so that that woman could eternally spend forever with the Father in perfect union with Jesus Christ. We are all in a situation where we deserve the stone. Yet by the grace of Jesus, he removes ourselves, puts himself in that place and takes the stone on our behalf. This is good news. This is our motivation. This is where we place our trust. And nothing else. Because you cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. And he takes the stone.
we're going to take communion. Communion is for those, as we read earlier on the screen, that love Jesus, that understand the sacrifice that Jesus has made. It is not for you if you don't understand the sacrifice, if you don't appreciate the sacrifice, if you don't understand deeply why you're in the fact you're taking bread and you're taking a bit of juice. So if that is you, we just ask that you allow the plate to go by you. There will be another opportunity likely where you can take communion once you better understand what it's about. But for those of us who understand what it is about, communion is an opportunity for us to enter into a time of confession. Did you realize that the scriptures say don't take communion if you have a feud going on with another believer? If you're off relationship with another person that also calls themselves a follower of Jesus, don't take communion. Go, make yourself right with that other person, then come and take communion. Because in communion, we're celebrating the grace that has been extended to us. So who would we be a people not to extend grace to other people? Communion is an opportunity where we celebrate the forgiveness of Jesus towards us. Who would we be not to allow our forgiveness to extend to somebody else? So he says, go and forgive before you partake. And maybe for you, this would be a Sunday, and you've, you've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never put your trust in Jesus. I would invite you today to put your trust in Jesus, make him the Lord of your life, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, and begin to walk alongside the rest of us as we try to figure this out to do life together, to walk out life together. And if you've ever been hurt by someone that stood on a religious platform, I'm sorry. The person that stood there will need to be saved by grace. I need to be saved by grace. You need to be saved by grace. We're all on equal footing with one another. So as we take communion this morning, let us remember the sacrifice. What I'm going to invite you to do is take a piece of bread, take a cup, hold on to it. I'm going to come up afterwards, lead us through it. Uh, If you're someone who has dietary restrictions, gluten-free, we want you to take communion too. Uh, So we're going to invite you to go to the back to our welcome booth. Just exit out this way, go to the back, um, and we do have a gluten-free option for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that it is not about religious obedience that is is our saving act, But Jesus, it is because of your grace that we are saved. God, I pray for those of us in this room that need to repent and confess the many times that we have looked to religious obedience as our saving act, as our saving work. God, would you rid rid ourselves of that desire, rid us of our pride. And Jesus, might we trust you. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room today that's never committed themselves to following Jesus and live in that reality of one day I will die and I don't know where I'm going to be, may they be assured that through the grace of Jesus Christ and faith and belief in him, that that eternity can be secured through faith in you. They don't need to like leave and get a bunch of things kind of like worked out and then maybe one day I'll be good enough. God, you were enough for them. And we trust you. God, some of us in this room don't like this, this thing about grace because we want to secure our own fate by being obedient. But God, I thank you for your grace because it makes a way for all of us. And our good will never outweigh our bad, especially by your conditions. So I thank you, Jesus, that we are made, made right, that we are freed, that we are given new, new selves, new bodies. So good. In your name we pray. Amen.